This message is entitled, Receiving, and is given by Jack Taylor. We hooked Dr. Vance Havner up to one of these in our church, and he got up, and in that uh, tone of his said, Oh, for the good old days when you didn't have to wear a leash. I don't know what we did before the sound systems came along, do you? Tell you one thing we did, we heard each other. And uh, sometimes these things are sort of like a spittoon. If you hit them, it's all right. If you don't, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> but I'm excited. I'm excited because the Lord Jesus uh, said in his word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? Make you free. And if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I like that. Now, if I were to have a long version, can't put a long title on the tape, so I had to shorten it. Um, I would, uh, if I were prone to be a plagiarist, preach tonight on the ins and outs of reception. <laughs> I just refuse to settle for the negative. And so I'm going to preach on the opposite of rejection tonight. I'm going to preach on the principle of receiving. And I want you to pray that God will make it alive. I've spoken many times on this subject. And I don't want to assume that the nature of the message or uh, my confidence in, its, uh, uh, in the power of the principle uh, is anything without God. So I just want us to bow to pray. And I want you to claim with me a fresh blessing from the hand of God tonight and from his heart. Father, I thank you that there is not a problem represented here, nor in all the world, but that Jesus Christ is the answer. And I pray that you would equip us, first of all, to discover him to be the answer in every area of need in our lives, and then teach us how not only to explain, but to implement the extension of love necessary for the liberating of millions in bondage. Sanctify this hour to yourself. May the message be fresh. May your hand be upon preacher and listener alike. And may the result be glory for you and edification for us. And we're happy to praise you in advance because we're confident that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that requires something to have to follow, isn't it? You heard about the fellow who survived the Johnstown flood? And he said, uh, he went all over the country, uh, just striking up a conversation with a total stranger, and said, would you like to hear how I survived the Johnstown flood? Nobody wanted to hear it. Yeah, he'd go to church and said, would you like to hear how I survived the Johnstown flood? Nobody wanted to hear it. Walk up to a total stranger. Could I tell you how I survived the Johnstown flood? And he died without ever getting to share it. Went to heaven. There was news of a testimony meeting. And he went up to the director and said, could I give my testimony how I survived the Johnstown flood? And uh, the fellow said, we'll have to let you know. So sure enough, they let him know. You may give your testimony. He said, I can't believe it. 
He said, I survived the Johnstown flood years ago, and this is the first opportunity I've ever... Do you really mean it? Do you mean... Do you have the right name? Yes. Yes, we have the right name. And you may share your witness of how you survived the Johnstown flood. And he just couldn't believe it. He just sat as folks gave that testimony. And in a moment, the fellow got up and said, Now we will have the testimony of Noah, followed by a fellow who will give his testimony of how he survived the Johnstown flood. <clears throat> now, it does make a difference who you follow. I am aware of the position I am in tonight. I'm going to read two verses that are perhaps the most familiar in some ways of any to be found in the Bible, and that's in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And you're aware that these are the words that uh, Adam spoke. Now, we're not absolutely sure whether he said them to God in the presence of the woman or to the woman in the presence of God, but in either, uh, either case, it uh, essentially means the same. And... Uh, before I read it, let me just sort of draw the disposition, if I might. You're aware that this is the first recorded utterance of created man, and it was on the occasion of essentially the first marriage. Uh, that's easily easy to see that it was. And uh, on the occasion of the first glimpse that man had of the beautiful creation of God, the woman. You're aware that he created man first, and by the way, in the Hebrew language, when God created man, he uses a simple word. Uh, that is, the writer uses a simple word, uh, much as the same as you would uh, build a clay pot, a simple word, create. But when he fashioned woman, the word create is not used. It is indeed a word of uniqueness. When God made man, he made a rather simple thing. But when God made woman, he made a unique creation. And a word is used which literally means handcrafted. And uh, you know, you have to watch a man who says he understands women. He's liable to lie about anything else. God created a unique instrument. When he created the helpmate for man, the helpmate for man, and you're aware that, uh, that uh, man was here, we don't know how long, God placed him in a garden, and then one day said, it is not good that man be left alone. I'll create for him a helpmeet, something suited to his need. And uh, I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but immediately the Bible sort of changes scene. And it says right after that uh, that the Lord God formed out of the ground or uh, formed every beast uh, out of the ground and every bird of the sky and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Now, I don't know whether you've ever put that together or not, but God said, I'm going to make you a helpmeet. And then began to send every conceivable kind of animal by him. Now, poor Adam didn't know whether to name it or claim it. And uh, he's sending all the animals by and you can imagine that by day's end, if it took all day, uh, he uh, didn't know what to think. And uh, in fact, that little episode closes as Adam, uh, as the Bible says, but for Adam there was not found a helpmate. Now that simply meant that he'd been looking for all day. 
And then you know that God put him to sleep, took from his side a rib, and from that rib made the glorious creation of woman, an unparalleled creation, clothed her in the glory of himself, tapped Adam on the shoulder, and Adam awakened, blinked his eyes, and there she was. And this is what he said. Now, momentous occasions call for momentous utterances. At important times, folks conceive important things to say. We sent a man to the moon years ago. He knew if they made it, he'd be the first man to put a footprint on the moon. All the way up there, he practiced what he was going to say. Surely he did. Don't you think a part of his preparation wasn't, what am I going to say when I get there? I mean, everybody is going to see it read and listen to it. It'll be around the world before my next foot is down. I must say something, uh, something important. And everything went well. The lunar module landed. He uh, stayed there a while and then climbed down the ladder and put his footprint on the moon as he said something tremendously important. I've forgotten what it was, but it was terribly important. <laughs> because you just don't say unimportant things at important times. And here's the scene. First man, first woman. And surely all the animals are standing by to see. All of creation in glorious array to see the completion of man. First wedding, first man, first woman, first recorded utterance of man. And he says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this reason, or therefore, man shall leave father and mother and cleave unto her, and they shall be one flesh. Now, I've looked at that all my life, never had a wedding ceremony, but that I used it. But I'm going to have to confess to you something. I had not the slightest idea what it meant. And to tell you the truth, it's like a lot of things. Uh, I really didn't have too deep an appreciation for it. I had the feeling that if Adam were trying to be romantic, he fumbled the ball. I mean, it sounds more like a laboratory report than it does the overflow of an aesthetic heart. I mean, feature tonight. You go home on this cold, snowy night, and uh, how long have you been married? 20, 30, 40 years? And uh, you feel particularly romantic? And so you give uh, all uh, the folks time to go to bed that are with you. And uh, he tells you that uh, he wants you to see. You see that smirk on his face and he's up to something. <laughs> and when everybody's to bed, you say, what is it? What is it? He said, come sit down. He turns all the lights out except the one at the end of the couch. And you sit down together and he sits close to you and takes his, uh, your hand in his and looks into your eyes and says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You'd say, honey, do you feel well? I was writing the book on the home a few years ago, and all of a sudden I awakened to the fact that perhaps the golden text of marriage, home, and the family was Genesis 2, 22, or 23 and 24. And I didn't know what my text meant. So my writing came to a halt. 
And I said, Lord, I can't go any further till I learn something of what this means. Because I have an idea that here is a clue to what a marriage ought to be. That somewhere within the context of the text, there is a secret or there are secrets that may liberate many a life. Little did I know that there were a whole string of secrets. Well, I began to try to study every commentator almost that I read. I just skipped across it, like, like as if to say, well, you ought to, everybody ought to know what that means. And I didn't. And uh, I was sort of like uh, Brother Macbeth this morning. I took Hebrew and Greek, and about the only thing I knew when we got through, I knew the difference between Hebrew and Greek. That's about it. I did take Greek. Hebrew took me. But I, I tried to translate it and couldn't do it. I, I really have some doubt about the deep authenticity of the living Bible. It's a, it's a paraphrase, and if you understand that, it's all right. But I got a little help from it. I noticed that it started like this. This is it, exclamation mark. I said, that sounds a little better. This sounds like excitement. And I began to look at that, and I just asked the Lord to, to give me some clues to what it meant. And uh, I saw that this was, in essence, a doxology. Whether it was to her, for God, or to God, for her, it was a doxology. It was the overflow of man's grateful heart. And at least five things began to issue from it. I'll deal with the first one, but I want to name them. I want to name the several of them. First of all, man was making, Adam was making a declaration of his reception. He was saying, Lord, from your hand I receive her. He again was making an acceptance of responsibility. He owned responsibility, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It was an admission of completeness. This is the rest of me, he was saying in effect. I wasn't all here till you got here, now I'm completed. Again, it was a commitment to togetherness. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother, cleave unto her, and they shall be one flesh. Finally, it was a celebration of unity, of oneness, of wholeness, and they too shall be one flesh. But I began to work on that first one. And I began to see a principle emerging that has become one of the most exciting things I can think of. I suppose the greatest revelation I ever had regarding the home and marriage. And at the same time, a principle so wide, so universal, that no area of life is untouched. I can't think of anything more vital for the counselor or the counseling, and can think of nothing that liberates as the principle of receiving. So I began to write. I reached that time in my writing when I, I was as much the... Uh, the spectator as I was the participant. And I got excited over what I began to see. And do you know those times when you've stood in the pulpit or you've begun to write and you were as surprised as anybody else what uh, it was issuing forth? And I began to write. And the truth I felt began to flow. Well, I was pastor and I still had responsibilities and so early one morning I went to my office. And uh, I was caught before I was able to get out. A lady 
I came in, and she was terribly upset. Her hair was disheveled. Her face was red and splotchy, and her eyes were bloodshot, and she had a tale of woe to pour forth. And she said, oh, my husband, I had a knockdown drag out last night, and, and, and you've got to help us. Now, I thought within myself, now, Lord, I'm, I'm writing a book on the home. I don't have time to, to get involved in marital trouble. In fact, I had told my family, now, I'm going to write a book on the home the next uh, several weeks, and I'd appreciate it if we didn't have any family problems during that time. <laughs> but, of course, I gave in to better judgment, and I said, uh, all right, will, will he talk? She said, well, I don't know. I want to tell you, though, if he does, he hadn't been honest with anybody we've talked to, to yet. So she called him, and he said, yes, I'll talk. And so at 2 o'clock that afternoon, here they came. And when they sat down, I, I don't know why particularly I gave him the, the first crack at it, but I said, all right, George, what's the problem? He said, I'll tell you the problem. He's a very straightforward, matter-of-fact fellow. Uh, you never have to wonder what he's thinking. He's just told you before you wondered. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what's wrong. She's overweight, and she's uh, sloppy, and uh, she's a sloppy housekeeper. And to tell you the truth, I, can't, I don't have the slightest idea how anybody can be as dumb as she is after living with somebody as intelligent as I am for 22 years. That is precisely what he said. And I, I knew right away, I hadn't had much experience in counseling, but I knew right away that this couple had a problem. And uh, I listened to him uh, vituperate for about 15 minutes. And uh, I mean, he just had a bad report about everything about her. And all this while, I'm thinking about the seed truth that I saw in this strange pair of verses in Genesis chapter 2. And then it began to come to me that God allowed no interruptions, no disappointments, only his appointments. And I began to conclude somewhere in the back of my brain that it could be this was all arranged for God, not only to help this couple, but somehow to confirm a principle that was taking shape in my own mind. And I quietly thanked the Lord for it. And when he got through, I thought I would try it on him. All I had was a principle untried. That was merely an idea in my mind. And so I began to share. I said something like this. I said, George, um, were you married in a church? He said, yes. I said, by a preacher? He said, yes. I said, do you remember anywhere in the ceremony where the preacher said anything like this? Do you take this woman? He said, yes. I said, did you say I do? He said, well, of course. I said, you lied, didn't you? He said, what do you mean I lied? I said, you didn't take her. He said, didn't take her? He said, I've been putting the bill for 22 years. I guess I took her. I said, no, that's not what I mean. I said, you know, I've been reading the Bible, and I've discovered a principle. When Adam first saw Eve, he said something. And that something, perhaps above everything else, was an act of receiving. He was saying, in effect, God... I receive her as a gift from your hand, perfect and perfecting in her influence on me. I thereby liberate her to be all to me that she was made to be, and give myself to her as a responsible one to be to her all that I was made to be to her, so that both of us together may be to you and to creation all that we were made to be. And I began to hear things I'd never heard before out of my mouth. In fact, somewhere along the way, George said, Preacher, I never heard anything like this in my life. I said, I hadn't either. <laughs> and uh, I, I had no time to stop. It was coming, and I needed to go on. And so I began to share with him further. And, uh, and uh, 
he was a he was absolutely aghast, open-eyed and uh, open-mouthed and wide-eyed, and and uh, I just uh, I went on to explain the principle to him. I'd never really thought it through before, but God seemed to have it ready, and out my mouth it came, and. Uh, Right in the middle of it, I had a revelation. I had another revelation about a revelation. Now, you know, man and uh, uh, man and woman were made for each other. She was made to bring him to completion so that they two together may be all to God and all to creation and all to the total redemptive purpose of God that they were made to be. And uh, so that every quality about her would be beneficial to the completion of the qualities in him, and vice versa. Now, even with the fall, God did not give up his primary plan. It is still that man may, in the image of God, after his likeness, reign and be a vehicle through which the glory of God can be seen now and forever. And it is well to remember that when God states a purpose, that purpose is going to be achieved by sovereignty. God has not given up. God's not about to close the age in total disappointment. The issue is that what God asserted in creation and what has been attacked as the purpose of God ever since will one day be gloriously achieved and you and I are going to be a part of it. Praise the Lord. And I saw that, you see, God is so all-inclusive in his providence that he can take even those bad things that happen and sometimes especially those bad things that happen and has the power to transform them into something fantastically beautiful, productive. And I saw something that I'd never seen before. I guess that God began to put several things together. I remembered how that Joseph was sold by his wicked brothers, a victim of their jealousy, of their animosity, of their bitterness. And down to Egypt he was sold. And down there he was mistreated, deceived by a godless woman, and, and, uh, and unjustly punished for it. But when it was all over, he had judged it like this. It wasn't you to his brothers, he said, it was God. It wasn't bad, it was good. And he knew this principle that God was able to take a good thing, a bad thing, transform it into something good. And I saw, all of a sudden, that not only the good things in a woman, bless a man, but those things that are not quite so good, those things he'd change if he could, and vice versa. Those things in a man that a woman would change if she could have been brought into that marriage for a constructive purpose. I guess I got the clue when I began to look around me and saw the weird combinations God put together in marriage. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the chances are you'll not have to look several rows to see one. I mean, you know, it just works so many times that uh, it's just uncanny. It'd have to be by design, not by accident. For instance, have you ever noticed how that uh, here is a woman who is the paragon of neatness, and uh, she, she sort of worships a clean house, and she herself is impeccable, and uh, the Lord allows her to fall in love with a fellow who's never thought about it. I mean, he's just by nature about a degree and a third left of plum sloppy. And doesn't seem that she just falls in love helplessly with him. And she has the house looking like a million dollars. Give him five seconds from door to kitchen, and it looks like an accident, a train wreck. I can tell we have some prospects. Or here is, here is a man who 
um, who is a stickler for time. Somewhere it was computed that it was a sin to be late into his mind. And he, he absolutely goes off the handle when an employee is three minutes late. He'll lecture him for 30 minutes for being three minutes late. Who does he fall in love with? Well, a woman who he says is going to be 30 minutes late at her own funeral. She hasn't been on time yet. Or here's one. Have you ever noticed how many times a man who is a rather non-communicative type um, he could live 40 years on a series of unintelligible grunts. You know, the one who feels he's totally explained something if he grunts twice. <laughs> and he falls in love with a woman who feels that time is wasted when the air isn't filled with the sound of her melodious voice saying anything about anything. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, she just feels like silence is sin, and so when there's a, when there's a, a silent second, that's her clue to begin her speech. And, and they're together. Have you noticed that? And, and we could go on, and it can work both ways. And uh, why? Why? Why, my friend, it ought to seem obvious. God has brought into your marriage by his design all of the qualities to give a picture, a reflection of the glory of God. Nobody is going to get you into shape to be conformed to the image of Christ as fast as your husband or wife. You say, boy, I haven't found it. They can get me in worse shape faster than anybody on earth. Oh, with that capability, the same capability is on the other side. And the principle that's vital is this. If you receive that quality and say something like this to the Lord, Lord, uh, did you have something in mind when you brought this quality to, to our marriage in my wife or in my husband? And the Lord begins to share with you. You begin to see, for instance, that uh, you have a quality of impatience. And you said, Lord, you know, I, I really am impatient. I need you to make me patient. And for 20 years, you've been telling the Lord, this isn't quite what I had in mind, you know? Well, listen, why should God deliver her from being late until he delivers you by her being late, by what her being late was brought into your marriage to deliver you? Or why should God deliver her from being over-talkative when so far it hasn't delivered you from being a non-communicative bore? Or why should God deliver him from being a little bit on the sloppy side when so far you still worship neatness? Now, how much longer you will have to put up with that quality that is on the, in the suburbs of being intolerable may be up to you. It may be that when you receive it and say, Lord, I want to thank you and praise you that you brought in my wife exactly what I needed and I want to say thanks over it and let you get on with the program or over your husband to say, you know, I've been fussing about this quality, I've been complaining about it. You see, I told George that day, I said, George, it appears to me that you've been accusing God for 22 years of gross mismanagement of your affairs, and you've been griping, you thought to her, but in effect you've been griping at God. You've been rejecting her, at least accepting her at the best on contingency. I'll accept you when I get you straightened out, according to my own, uh, my, my own uh, view of what you ought to be. 
And I said, she's no nearer being what you want her to be than she was when you stayed. He said, she's not. I'll tell you, she's not. <laughs> and uh, I went on and delivered my discourse. I was quite satisfied with it. And uh, George said, uh, Preacher, there's just one problem. I said, what is it? He said, you said uh, Adam accepted Eve as a gift from God, perfect. Uh, she ain't perfect. I said, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And I think I uttered a one-word prayer like, uh, help. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I faced, I faced a, a perfectly good principle going down the drain on a technicality. And uh, I said, uh, I said, there's bound to be an answer to that. And it came just like that. I said, uh, in whose eyes is she not perfect? I said, through mine. I said, uh, did it ever occur to you that you may be looking through the wrong eyes? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'll answer that when you answer another question. I said, when Jesus died for us, he had something in mind, didn't he? He said, yes. I said, uh, you know what that something was? He said, well, I'm not sure. I said, well, let me ask you, did he achieve it? He said, oh, yes, he achieved it. I said, let me tell you what it was. He died that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. And every person born again is destined one day to be just exactly like Jesus. And when God looks through his eyes, his faith in his own processes, knowing what he knows, living in the eternal now, he, she's going to be and accepts her like that. And you know how he sees her? He sees her as foreknown, Romans 8, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. Now, isn't it amazing, George, that you've been living with a foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified woman for 22 years and have griped about it almost every day? He said, you don't say. Said, That's right. God moved in, and uh, we slipped over to the altar, and they took hands, and I helped them with a new set of wedding vows that went something like this. I said to, to her, do you take this man who holds your hand to be your husband? Do you receive him as a gift from God and so liberate him to be all to you that a man was made to be to a woman? Do you so give yourself to him that you may become to him all that a woman was made to be to a man? She said, I do. And I said to him, do you take this woman who holds your hand to be your wife? Receive her as a gift from God, perfect and perfecting in her influence on you, thereby releasing her to be all to you she was made to be, and so give yourself to her that you can be to her all that you were made to be to her. He said, I do. Well, they went on their way. They've had a perfect marriage. In fact, they've had some counseling since. But since that time, I've discovered that this is a principle as universal as life. And this is the principle. Rejection breeds bondage, brings restraint, causes confusion, makes division, locks up potential. Reception 
releases, settles confusion, breaks down barriers. Reception releases, bondage comes from rejection. And I began to think about our own marriage. How that after 17 years, our marriage came to a deadlock in communication one night. And we learned that principle without it ever being stated. That somehow, if we were going to continue with any semblance of union, with any reflection of the glory of God, we were going to have to become one in spirit. Oh, now, we knew we ought to be one. We just hadn't decided in 17 years which one. <laughs> it was first this one and then that one. But something happened that night. We were to never get over it. I guess we learned to give it a term later. We accepted each other. We received each other. Now, whether you're aware of it or not, that statement in 22, 23 and 24 of Genesis 2 is freighted with love. And yet the word love is not there. For this is what love says. Love says, this is it. This is what I need. Love says, I receive you unconditionally. Love says, you are the means whereby I'm to be completed. I love you not only for the privilege of loving you, but what loving you makes of me and what you're responding to my love makes of me. Love is saying, I take responsibility for you. You're bone of my bone. Love is giving up one life for another. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto her, and they shall be one flesh. Love says, I die to one state to live to another state. That's what love says, and we, we throw the term around loosely. We say, I love you, I love you, I love you. What does that mean? You ought to investigate it. What is love? Love is that self-imparting quality in one that causes that one to seek the highest good in the other regardless of the expense incurred. Love is saying, I'm willing to leave one form of life to give my life to you. Love is saying, as he said finally, and they shall be one flesh. Love is the means whereby two hearts are welded together. Love is the thing that destroys divisions and differences and feelings and emotions and breaks down racial barriers. And love is essentially saying, I accept you. I receive you. I esteem you to be a thing of value, therefore, not with any contingencies, but unconditionally, I accept you. And I began to look all around life. And from that time until this, I suppose I've never, I've never counseled a married couple without introducing them to this principle. And more than once, after about five minutes, I've said, would both of you be quiet a minute? I have something I want you to listen to. Sat them down while they listened an hour and watched tears come to their eyes, brokenness to their hearts, and two hearts that came into the office, totally opposed to each other, were melted together. And I began to see that this was a principle more than just for marriage. I began to see, as I believe Dr. Solomon has seen, that rejection is perhaps the base of most of the difficulties of man, either real or supposed. And that the opposite of rejection really is love. And I began to check as folks walked into my office, sat in front of my desk, unable to cope with the problem. And most of the time I assumed, and correctly so, that they were victims of some sort of either real or supposed rejection. 
And they were going to have to come to understand that somebody unconditionally, with no strings attached, loved them. They were going to have to sense total belonging in this wild, wicked world. And as I said this morning, I think we'd all be surprised when we asked the question of those coming to us, uh, name the person in your life who loved you without any conditions attached. And most of them can think of not one. And I began to think of children. Mine first. How that God gave me those children through which to live again, through which to correct my mistakes, to inculcate the things I've learned too late, much too late, and to seek to see in them the regrets that were mine straightened out. Provided of God as a means of extending his life through me and them. And I came to accept them again as God's gifts to me. And uh, found out it was so easy to say sometimes cold words and hard words, uh, thoughtless words, sometimes brutal words, words that sting and words that have more than a, than a present influence, words that may lodge in the heart to become seeds of later rejection. I began to see that so much of the time parents may reject the lingo of this age. Parents may reject the dress of this age. Parents may reject so many other things. But in it all, they must not reject nor give any feeling that they are doing any less than receiving their offspring. And I saw the same situation as children. The tendency to call the father and mother the old man, old lady. Disrespect. A non-receiving attitude. Subtle forms of rejection. Maybe not open rebellion, but just a laughing at archaic ideas. Making fun of the old-fashioned ways. And I saw how that kids were going to live under the authority of God. And would I have any semblance, of, any semblance of authority in their own lives, they were going to have to receive their parents. And I began to see in my own life that I've appreciated my parents. I've loved them always. I've always figured I was fortunate to have been born in the family I was. But there was a revival in our relationship when in the name of Jesus I accepted them as God's gifts to me, gifts for which I was responsible. One day I left them. I don't call Dad for orders of the day, but I've never outlived the responsibility of honoring them. And one day the Lord spoke to my heart and said, How would you like to face old age? Knowing that your children were going to give you the same attention you are now giving your parents. And I want to tell you, I changed my ways. Writing, calling, and thinking of them. Receiving. And I began to think of the church, the body. I began to think of my own body. Not much, but it's all I have. Coordinated to some degree. Because the different faculties and instruments and organs all sort of fit together in some semblance of what a man ought to look like. And uh, there's receiving here. The hand receives the arm and the arm the body and uh, the heart receives its responsibilities and the brain gives and receives its orders and, and uh, here, is a, here is a vast set of organisms that defies explanation. Volumes of books can be written and yet what God has done in this body, why I stand here right now, it, uh, it, I'm amazing. You may not realize that, but I'm amazing. I, I'm operating today on about uh, 
oh, 2,500 calories too many, and uh, uh, generating, uh, uh, generating units of heat. Here I stand, a living organism. If I'm well, my temperature is as yours, is 98.6, and warnings come, and when it needs to be higher as a warning, or, or needs to go lower as a reflection, it happens. And uh, I have a brain operating on seven one-hundredths of a volt. Uh, a shocking thing. All because this body is living in reception. And I thought of the body of the church. No wonder it's not going forward. It's got limbs that are paralyzed and fights with each other. We've got 14 ways to divide from each other. If our terms are different, we divide. If, our, uh, if we look different, use, uh, if we're in different parts of town and, and different jobs, we divide. And there's not reception. I thought, what in the world would happen if on any given Sunday morning my 4,000 members came together receiving each other, everybody unconditionally loving everybody else? I'd never get to preach. I'd just direct the traffic. <laughs> just, just direct the traffic. Love. Love. No wonder this massive body is almost paralyzed. Yours would be too if there weren't reception. I don't know how much time I have, but I have two areas that I will talk about in the closing minute. I have about ten minutes. And uh, those two areas are, uh, are circumstances and self. We need to receive our circumstances. Make a lot of difference in your life whether you do or not. You complain about them. You just prolong your misery. You refuse them and God will have to fix something else to fix you. And tonight whether you walk in liberty or whether you walk in bondage will not be what happens in your circumstances but your relationship to your circumstances. Reject them and there will be continued bondage. Receive them and there will be liberation. Two men are jilted. One philosophizes and writes a song and makes a half million dollars. One makes a tragedy out of it and jumps off the bridge and kills himself. Two same events, just different responses to it. Two believers. Something happens disappointing in their life. Circumstantial loss, financial loss, something wrong. One of them says, Lord, I just read in your word where you're meeting all my needs. My eyes can't see it, but I by faith thank you very much that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And gratification comes, and out of that tragedy is molded a pulpit from which he ministers to thousands more. But the other groans and moans and complains and turns inward with his tragedy and becomes bitter in old age. It all depends. Reception brings release. Rejection brings bondage. Now, how about yourself? You know, Christians, I suppose, are the uh, are mysterious folks. We hardly know what to do with ourselves. We hear one message on, uh, you're supposed to reckon yourself dead. And somebody else comes along and says, now live the life of victory. He says, well, here I'm dead and yet I'm alive. Paul says, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. Fine. Nevertheless, I live. Good. Uh, yet it's not I that am living, mm -hmm. but it's Christ who lives in me. 
are. And the life I live now, have you ever read that? And said, boy, Paul, I wish you could make up your mind. <laughs> Sounds like double talk, a mystery. What are we supposed to do with ourselves? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear in the Bible. If you look, you're supposed to know yourself, know your identity, then love yourself, and then forget yourself. You say, love yourself? Uh-huh. Receive yourself. Receive your new identity. You said, I thought, what we're supposed to reckon ourselves dead. That's right. But that's not all the verse. We're supposed to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Say, listen, you can talk about how you died all you want to. There's something running around alive under your hide. And the world and you will reckon with whoever that is. Something's alive. What is it? A new identity. Discovering who you are in Jesus Christ. Find that when you stepped into his life, you've always been there. There was something familiar, something, something comfortable about it. You've always belonged. And that was your life, and it's his life in you. Not just an extension of your life, not some souped-up version of your life, not some uh, cheap, hollow joy. Accept yourself. I see one of the worst problems in, in, in the Christian experience. Folks who don't like themselves. And if you don't learn to love yourself, you won't learn to love anybody. You won't love God. Because you see, for you not to love yourself is for you to accuse God of not knowing his business. He loves you. And if you don't love you in response to his love for you, you've accused God of having bad judgment. And I suppose all of us have experienced this problem of self-esteem to some degree. We've ranged somewhere between the worthless worm and the master of our fate. And both of them wrong. And many a person, many a person is crying out, Help me, help me, I may kill you while you try, but help me. And somewhere in the world there's going to have to be room for folks who will love unconditionally even though that love puts them in such a vulnerable position that they may get hurt at times. Because here is a person who says, love me, love me. I don't love me, but I've got to have somebody loving me. While they're saying, don't get acquainted with me. Because if you ever get to know me like I know me, you'll hate me as bad as I hate me. Accept yourself. On what basis? On the basis that you have authority to believe anything of yourself that God has said of you in his word. And he said a heap about you. He said that you're his chosen. He said that you're his holy one. He says that you've been chosen to be holy and without blame before him in love. He says that you're going to be gathered together in one in Christ Jesus. He said that you're the apple of his eye. He says that he loves you. That he gave up the treasure of heaven to bring your salvation. He loves you. Well... The principle of receiving is a principle that must be present in the counseling room. Whatever you call it, however you want to state it, you are in front of a person who among all the needs of his life must have unconditional love. I wish I could relate to you, but I don't have the time. How God has transformed my mother-in-law and my father-in-law just because I believe of the principle of unconditional receiving love. And I believe there are folks here tonight who have restraints 
bondage in their life that can be set free by the principle of receiving. So let me ask in closing. Husband, have you received your wife? I mean, accepted her as a gift from God. Things you'd like to change and all. And praise God for every quality. Wife, have you received him? A gift from God. Designed to help bring you into Christ-likeness. Dad, Mom, have you lived in receiving love of the children? I don't mean providing for them, just that. I mean imparting yourself to them to build them up at any cost. Or have you punished them sometimes because they've done something that stands to embarrass you with your friends? Children, have you received your parents? Accepted them as God's gift, liberating them to be all to you and him that they were made to be. Have you received your circumstances? Grieved about anything? Embittered about anything? Be terrible to fight against the very thing God geared as a piece of furniture for your perfection? Accept it. You say, oh, preacher, you don't know how bad a thing I have to accept? Accept it. You say, how? Well, the way you take something is you just reach out your hands and say, uh, thank you very much. And the package may be wrapped in dark paper. But it comes from the hand of God. And God don't give no junk. Thank you, Lord, for this heartache, for this day of sadness, for this darkness that I can't explain, for this hurt deep in my heart. I thank you very much. I accept it. And for the wart on my nose, and for a personality I would like to change if I could, for ways that I've tried so very much to shift. I accept me as I am. Not that I'm finished, but that you might make me so pliable that I can become what I was made to be. This is the secret to salvation. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. It's the key to answered prayer. Whatsoever things you desire, said Jesus, when you pray, believe that you received them and you shall have them. It's the key to unity in the home and in the church. I accept you by faith as the apple of God's eye. I need you, I esteem you, I love you. And I have an idea that this can be in your life a key a real revival. This is bone of my bone. This is the rest of me. I approve, I accept, I receive. She was taken from man. She'll ever be a part of me. Therefore, I'll die to one way of life, leaving it and cleave to life with her. And we too will become one. The ins and outs of receiving.
God gave you a will with which to respond to him. With that will you may receive, or with that will you may reject. But the principle is the same, though you have a choice. Once the choice is made, the result is fixed. For reception always brings release, and rejection always bondage. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you have awakened broken cords to vibrate once more in relationships in this very place tonight. Lord, above everything, we need to live in reception of you. To be too busy is a form of rejection. To be bitter, mournful, or complaining is just rebellion in a mild form. Lord Jesus, I've received you as my Savior, my Lord, but afresh tonight, I want to say to you, I'm sold on this relationship. I want you to reign and reign forever. I want to receive all that you are, to be made by you all that I can be. I want to receive my wife as God's gift to me. I want to receive my son and my daughter. I want to accept my circumstances. I want to receive myself. Not as I see me struggling and weak and poor and needy, but as you see me becoming like him. And I praise you tonight for the vast potential that you've placed within every heart of receiving love. In Jesus' name, amen.